day well. It was, what would it be, seven years ago. And uh, my wife and I were living in a town that was just north of Edinburgh. She was up the stairs and I was down the stairs. Um, but I heard her call my name. And I, I don't know what it was. Maybe I detected a sense of urgency in her voice because I dropped what I was doing. And I ran up the stairs to see what on earth was going on. There she was, uh, standing outside our bedroom door with a white stick in her hand. And I heard the words that I will never, ever forget. Andy, I'm pregnant. Andy, I'm pregnant. Just a few words, you know. But I knew right there that my life would never be the same again. So just a few words, but words with life changing, massive, huge implications. Well, this morning, we turn together as a congregation to consider the story of Jesus and the Syrophoenician woman. And I'm sure that what struck you as Gabriel read these verses is just how succinctly Mark records this episode in his gospel. Did that not hit you? I mean, the the brevity, the concision here is stark. But friends, you understand this. These words we are going to look at this morning, they are vital words. This is a portion of scripture with consequences, ready for this, consequences for all the nations under the sun. So there may only be a few verses. What is it? Six verses, seven verses here. There may only be a few words, but their significance cannot be overstated. So with that, the importance of this section underlined, I would invite you just now to please, as a congregation, Turn back with me uh, to Mark chapter 7 and to have this account open in front of you. So it's Mark 7 from verse 24. So if you're using that church Bible, not the pew Bible, the the seat Bible, uh, from page 1010. And we'll consider, God willing, three elements of this. Maybe three lessons that God teaches us here. First of those is this. We see a lesson here about the nature of the church. A lesson in these verses about the nature of the church. Okay, if you were here last week, most of you were. If you were here last week, you remember that we heard an incredible revelation from the Lord Jesus Christ. He showed the Pharisees, he showed the disciples... That true religion, that true relationship with God, remember, it wasn't about ritual, and it wasn't about ceremony, it was not about the external things. What was it about? Jesus revealed to us that it was about our very hearts before God. That was last week. Well, what we see in this portion of Scripture this morning, that principle at the heart, that principle about purity before God, we see it here just now, put to the test. How? Well, what have we got? What are we dealing with here? Well, in Mark chapter 7, it's a woman and it's a mother 
that confronts Jesus. And you see what she does, don't you? She is begging Jesus to heal her child. Now, first thing that I want you to throw here is the sheer impurity of the whole scene that we're dealing with. Do you see what I mean by that? I think about, where is it in verse 24 that, that, that Jesus is in this portion of scripture? Did you see, what does the NIV say? I think the NIV says that he is in the vicinity of Tyre. Does that mean anything? What does it mean? It means that Jesus at this point was in a Gentile area. So this is an, whoa. As far as the Pharisees are concerned, this is, this is off limits, man. You know, this is an unclean, impure part of the world. He's in Tyre. And then who is he speaking to here? Did you notice this? Who is he speaking to? He's speaking to a woman. But hang on a second. Is this woman even a Jew? Like what are these very strange words that I'm saying to you this morning? Syrophoenician. What does that mean? It means that she was a Gentile woman. Do you see? Again, she is unclean. As far as the Pharisees are concerned, she's off limits. And just in case we're not getting this, What Mark does in the original, how does he speak about her child's illness? You might notice it in the footnote. She's possessed, this girl. But but what is she possessed with? Did you see it? An unclean spirit. Do you see the point here? Like everything that we're dealing with in these six, seven verses, everything, it's it's as far as the Pharisees are concerned, it's, it's dirty, it's impure, it's all unclean. Now you see, don't you, that at the very heart of this portion of scripture, there is, what would you call it, a verbal spat. Isn't that right at the heart of this? The main thing that goes on here is this sort of, would you call it a tete-a-tete between this woman and Jesus? You know, a verbal interaction. So how does that start? Look at verse 27. So you've got the scene. We've set the scene. Like this, this woman is pleading with Jesus. And she's come to him and she says, Lord, please, would you heal my little baby? Please, Jesus, would you heal my, my child, my little girl? And what does Jesus say? In effect, does he not say no? I mean, in effect, does he at least not say not yet? Look at verse 27. He says, well, first, let the children eat All they want, for it is not right to take the children's bread and to toss it to the dogs. Now, hear this. (coughs) Excuse me. When I was a kid, I remember uh, reading that in Sunday school, in the Sunday school class. And I remember not having a clue, not a scooby-doo, what that meant. You know what is it? They don't take bread from children and throw it to dogs. What did this mean? But you know what it means, don't you? And the boys and girls at the back of the church, you see what is being represented in this parable of Jesus. The children. They're the Jews, are they not? The children of God. And, and what's the bread? Oh, think about Mark. Think about the feeding of the 5,000. The bread is surely the work of Jesus, is it not? And wait a minute. The dogs. Is that not a bit of a derogatory thing to say? To call somebody a 
dog. But is that not how the Pharisees view the Gentiles? Do you see what Jesus is saying here? This woman pleads for her daughter. And Jesus says, it would not be right for me to work amongst you, the Gentiles. Why not? I have come to focus on the Jews, the people of Israel alone. Now, we last week were taken aback by the sheer lack of faith that was on display. Were we not? Do you remember that? The the ignorance of the teachers of the law and the disciples about how to worship God. But is all of that not contrasted today with the immense faith and the immense perception of this lovely Gentile woman? Because how does she respond to that news from Jesus? Look with me. Look at verse 28. How does she respond? She's been rejected, it would seem. And she says, yes, Lord. But even the dogs under the table, they eat the children's crumbs. <laughs> but do you see the perception? Do you see what she gets? She does not in any way dispute the priority of the Jews in Jesus' ministry. She doesn't dispute that. What does she do? She pleads with them. Just a crumb, Lord. Just a little work amongst my family. Just a little of your power for my little child. And how does Jesus respond to that? Here's the point. Such is her faith. What does he do? He heals this woman's child. Now, friend, what did we say at the start of this sermon? We said that this portion of scripture here It has consequences for all of the nations of this earth. Now, do you see why that is? Here, for the very first time in Mark's gospel, I think we are seeing here the the true scope and the true extent of Jesus' work of salvation. Now, ask yourself, what is it that Jesus is doing here, right now, in this portion of Scripture? What is he doing? In response to faith, he is breaking the bonds that Satan has, breaking the control that Satan has over a Gentile's life. Do you see what we are being pointed to? Do you see what we're being told here? Salvation was not the preserve of the people of Israel. Like salvation was not restricted to the Jews. No, no, salvation was for... Anyone, anywhere who would come in repentance and believe to the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see this? Like what a truth this is, what a message this is. There are no ethnic bounds to the good news of salvation. And this morning, friends, in light of that, I want you to see the sheer magnificent opportunity that you have as a Christian today in London. Did you see what I mean by that? Let's see this morning. We were going to go to church in a different part of the world. Let's say that we were going to go to church in the part of the world that you are from. Okay? So let's say we're going to go to a church in Brazil, maybe, or in America, or in Africa. And let's say we're running late for church. 
And we come in the back door of that church and it squeaks and everybody turns round to look at us. What do we see? Don't we see a wash of faces of the very same skin tone? And don't we see a group of people with exactly the same economic situation? But hang on a second, that's not the same here, is it? It's not the same in London. And it's not the same in London City Presbyterian Church. So do you see the opportunity that is afforded to us by God? We can in here actually model this fundamental truth of the gospel. Do you see it? That you and I, by holding, clinging to the good news of Jesus Christ as this ethnically diverse group of people, we can actually show people, we can actually embody the sheer bread, the sheer extent of God's grace. Isn't that exciting? As a congregation, we cannot only declare and tell, but we can actually show people that salvation is not about race. And it's not about social standing, is it? And it's not about religious privilege. And it's not about our upbringing. What is it about? We can show people. It's simply about trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. Now this is going to take work. And it's going to take prayer. And you and I are going to have to work harder at our relationships within the church aren't we? After the church, we're going to have to go and speak to people we would not naturally gravitate towards. To speak to people of different ages, it's not easy. To speak to people of different nationalities, again, that isn't easy. But you know, don't you? Your heart hearts, and I know it is fundamentally worth it. For us as a congregation, not just to speak, but to show people the breadth of what Jesus Christ has done. To actually show people this truth. Ready for this truth? Sin. Sin is the only barrier to salvation. Isn't that the case? Like what are we learning in Mark chapter 7? By his grace, Jesus was willing to work amongst the Gentiles. What does that teach us? It shows us that salvation is available today for all who will believe. So we see a lesson about the nature of the church. Second thing we see here is a lesson about the nature of prayer. A lesson about the nature of prayer. Excuse me. Okay. Without question without doubt in that first point we have seen the principle foremost message of this section of scripture here the principle primary message here is that salvation was not confined to ethnic jews but the work of jesus had worldwide implications there you go that's your number one message you take that home But God is so gracious to us, isn't he? And not only in these verses are we handed that theological diamond. We are also in these verses given gems for practical Christian living. Now, do you see what I mean by that? 
Like, surely in the example of this Syrophoenician woman and her interaction with the Lord Jesus Christ, surely you and I in that are given teaching here about prayer. About how to pray. And, and with this, we are definitely returning to, 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 uh, often stomped ground, aren't we, as far as LCPC is concerned. We talk in a reformed Presbyterian church, we talk a lot about prayer, don't we? We we return to this very frequently. Now, why is that? Well, I'll read you Calvin, see if you agree with Calvin. Calvin says this about prayer. He says that prayer is the chief exercise of faith. But, I don't know, maybe you're not a Calvin sort of person. Maybe you don't like Calvin all that much. Maybe you prefer Luther. So, here's Luther. I love this quote. As it is the business of tailors to make clothes, and as it is the business of cobblers to mend shoes, so it is the very business of Christians to pray. So you see the point here, like why do we return to the subject? Why do we talk about prayer a lot in the life of the church? Well, I'll give you a third quote. This is J.C. Ryle. And he sums it up by saying, Prayer is the very life breath of Christianity. So you see it, prayer is vital. It is crucial to us as believers. But okay, fine. What do we learn about prayer then? from the Syrophoenician woman and this section here. Well, yes, there is a lesson about prayer in Mark 7 for all that are gathered here this morning. But surely there is a particular lesson in the Syrophoenician woman for the parents of London City Presbyterian Church. For the parents of all ages and all stages. And that's kind of the obvious thing to see, isn't it? Because wait a minute, what does the Syrophoenician woman do? She goes to Jesus and appeals to the Lord for whom? For her little child. Now hear this. One of the most pressing needs we have at London City Presbyterian Church just now is for there to be a rediscovery of the importance of family worship. Its rediscovery is absolutely crucial. Of course, I'm not meaning the sort of rediscovery of, of, you know, a sneaky little verse before the kids go to bed and a very quick word of prayer. No. The rediscovery of the need that the people of God have to actually build their families upon heartfelt, genuine times of devotion with God. That is is crucial. Here's the thing though. Even should that happen, there is a further work to which the parents of LCPC must engage. A further work? What on top of, on top of sincere family worship, what's that? Well, surely we see it in Mark chapter 7. As parents, we must do what this woman is doing here. We must be actively, sincerely bringing our children before Jesus in prayer. 
And we must be doing what she does here. Now, what does she do here? She seeks God out on behalf of her child. And she falls before the Lord on behalf of her child. And she's pleading. And she's begging Jesus for her child's life. And you see, don't you, in this woman, what exactly we should be praying. I ask you that. Like, Come on, I'll, I'll turn it over to you. What does she pray for? What does she pray for? Does she pray for her child's education? No, and she doesn't pray for her her child's relationship. She does not for her child's career. She does not pray for her child's prosperity. What does she pray? Man, she prays that Jesus would perform a spiritual work. Like she prays that Jesus would shatter those bonds of sin in her daughter's life. That's what she prays. And it's that that must stand as our supreme priority in the prayers of parents at London City Presbyterian Church. But there is, isn't there, a very, very specific truth about prayer here, isn't there? I've uh, recently taken to playing a a Bible trivia game on my phone when I'm stuck in the tube somewhere, you know, uh, it's it's more challenging than it sounds, and it's uh, it's also more fun than it sounds too. But I've got a bit of a problem with this. Uh, I am useless at working out the content of a parable if I'm just given the name of the parable. And perhaps, as a minister, I should not be confessing this, but it's true. You know what I mean, though? You know, you're just given a snippet, the title of a parable, and it's difficult. I think I know the parables, but it's difficult to work out which parable it is from the title. You know? You could do it, though, could you? If I was to give you a title of the parable, the parable of the persistent woman. Do you know it? They come to mind. It's that parable in Luke's Gospel, isn't it, where there's this woman and she... Do you remember it? She goes back and forward to the judge. And she's demanding justice from the judge, isn't she? Do you remember the parable? You know the parable? And how does it start? You know, what's his reaction? She goes to the judge and initially he refuses her, doesn't he? But yet because of her persistence, because of her tenacity, how does the parable end? Eventually the judge relents, doesn't he? And he gives her justice. And do you not see more than just an echo of that in these verses we are studying today? Like what happens here? The, this Gentile woman, she comes to Jesus. And what happens at the start? He refuses her. And what does she do? Does she give up? No, she, she, she continues, you know, she, she perseveres, she persists with Jesus. What happens at the end here? He relents, doesn't he? Doesn't he? And he heals her child. Is there not a fundamental lesson in that for the parents of this church? We should not be on occasion praying insincerely for our young ones. We must be persistent in bringing them to Jesus in prayer. Is that not right? Keeping coming back, pleading with Jesus time and time again for their souls. And do you know what? Maybe it will be just now that you are hearing the answer. Not yet. Not yet. But we persist. Why? Because clearly Jesus, our God, delights in that persistence. 
And may it not be worth it in the end. I say to you as a Christian parent, don't you want to experience what this woman here experiences? To come home one day and to see your child now free from the shackles of sin and evil. To see your child now having had a work of grace undertaken in their lives. I mean, what joy that would be, would it not? We see in these verses a crucial lesson about prayer. We persevere in prayer. And we'll close with a third element. We see also a lesson about the nature of salvation. So we've had a lesson about the nature of the church, a lesson about the nature of prayer, and we'll close with a lesson about the nature of salvation. Spring is a wonderful time of year, isn't it? Love spring. The days are getting a bit longer. The days, thankfully, are getting a bit warmer. Uh, there's a lot more color out there. The flowers are in bloom. It's a wonderful time of year. But as far as my two little girls are concerned, spring has one almighty drawback. Can you tell what that might be? There are a lot more beasties. And there are a lot more insects in the air. Barely a day goes by in our household where uh, the two little ones get freaked out by a fly or by a bee or a wasp. Now, you know what it's like, let's say we're sitting out in the garden in a warm summer's evening and it's getting a bit dark. So what do we do? We stick on the exterior light. What happens? That light acts like a magnet, doesn't it? And all these beasties, it attracts them, doesn't it? They're all sort of drawn to the light. Friends, I think there is almost a similar thing that's going on here in these verses. Consider how this portion of Scripture began. Can I read it to you? Now think about this scene right at the start. Mark says this, he says, Jesus left that place and he went into the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house. He did not want anyone to know it yet. Look at this. He could not keep his presence secret. Or as the ESV renders it, and this is wonderful, Jesus could not be hidden. Jesus could not be hidden. Now you see what's going on there, don't you? Like Jesus is after some respite, is he not? You know, there's been this exhausting opposition from the Pharisees. He's gone in a tire and he is looking for rest. And what's happened? He's been discovered. The such is his glory. Such as his power, such as his magnetism, that the light of the world has attracted people to himself. Jesus could not be hidden. He couldn't be. He could not be hidden. And because of that, this morning, I just want to close with a very, very straightforward question for everyone in here. You see that attraction. Is that what is happening in your life just now? Like over the last number of days, is this true for you? 
over the last number of weeks, has the Holy Spirit been at work in your heart? Has he been taking you to the location of the Lord Jesus Christ? And you know, you maybe look at it and you sort of say, well, actually, up until now, Jesus has kind of been in the darkness of my life. He's kind of been in the shadows and I haven't given all that much thought. He's been in the vicinity of Tyre. But I'm asking you, no, forget that. Now, here, is all of that changing, is it? Are you being drawn, pulled by God? Are you beginning to see the light of the world for yourself, the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. If that is the case for you this morning, do you see from these verses what you must do? Surely today you must do as this Syrophoenician woman and you must pray with persistence. For whom? For your very own soul. Because I want you to hear this. Jesus cannot be hidden. Eschatologically, that will prove to be the case. There will be a time when the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ will be revealed to all the world. Isn't that marvelous? Like a, a time where all people from all these nations they're going to be attracted like a magnet to the very throne of grace. A time where Jesus will not be hidden, not to one single soul. And I'm telling you, friend, see on that day, you are going to be unspeakably glad for this morning, having trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Will you do that? Friends, all of us today, we should be rejoicing in Jesus. We should go out of those doors praising God for the truth of the gospel. That salvation isn't dependent upon religious privilege. Hallelujah for that. And it is not dependent upon ethnicity. Isn't that wonderful? What is it dependent on? It is dependent only on the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, let us praise God this morning for the worldwide reality of grace. Let's pray.